Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 12. David was not ashamed to write in Psalm 110, The Lord said unto my Lord. David acknowledged his son to be his Lord. And Jesus appealed to that argument with the Pharisees. How enthusiastic do you think the worship of David was 1982 years ago or so when Jesus ascended up into heaven and he saw his son for the first time? The son that he had prophesied about in the book of Psalms. The son that bore his name. Because you can't even get through Revelation chapter 5 with the ascension and coronation of Jesus Christ without him being identified as out of the tribe of Judah and the root of Jesse and the offspring of David. What a blessing that would have been. John chapter 12 is before us. These are the last public words of the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded by John. We have had in verses 20 through 33 some wonderful words of the Lord Jesus Christ, initiated by those Greeks coming to see him. He had limited his ministry to the Jews. Paul tells us in Romans 15 that he was a minister of the circumcision. That is, that group of people that circumcised. Jesus himself said that I am not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sent his apostles out two by two to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and to no others. And so when these Greeks came to him in verses 20 through 22, they initiated a conversation and and teaching from our Lord about some great things he was going to do in the earth. And we have finished those things. And they were initiated by his death on the cross. Now we are come to four sections and we are going to finish John chapter 12 today. We have come to four sections. And the first section is verses 34 through 36, which I introduced to you last Lord's Day and I want to review briefly and point out a few things from them. After those gracious words, uh, verses 23 through 33, we have this response in verse 34. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus, and departed, and did hide himself from them. The people answered him, They didn't answer him the way they should have answered him. He had raised Lazarus from the dead, and they knew it. He had entered Jerusalem with the praise of the people, and they knew it, as the son of David. They had heard God thunder from heaven upon him in verse 28. They knew the divine proof that he was on a divine mission from heaven, and yet they wanted to object to his doctrine and to his life and ministry. Regardless of the gracious words that he had spoken, they resisted. Instead of answering, it is our duty to receive with all readiness of mind what we hear preached from God's word. We are not supposed to always be on guard trying to criticize or find fault with a message. Right. 
The Bible order is this, Acts 17.11. This is true nobility of the Bereans. They receive the word with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They didn't search the scriptures daily to see if these things were not so. They searched the scriptures daily to confirm what they had heard, and that was only secondary after they had received the word with all readiness of mind. When scriptures are open to you, and it only takes about five minutes to know whether a man in the pulpit is going to try to preach you the truth or not. It does not take five years. It only takes a few minutes to understand how he appeals to scripture and uses it to know whether you ought to receive it or not. But forget all preachers except one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead, been confirmed by God's voice from heaven, and his words were wonderful, and they wanted to question him. Questioning can be wrong. Questioning is not a sign of intelligence. Questioning is not a sign of prudence. Questioning, if it's foolish and unlearned questions, is a sin that God's ministers ignore. Questioning can be wrong if there's a striving about the law to no profit. You want to strive and fight? There's other churches that like to argue and debate. We are going to submit ourselves to God's word here. And let's make sure that that is our answer to Jesus Christ and his gospel. They said, we have heard out of the law. Jesus didn't care what they had heard. His whole Sermon on the Mount was to condemn what they had heard. It hath been said by them of old time. That is how Jesus took his sections of the Sermon on the Mount. It hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Jesus was not objecting to what Moses wrote, thou shalt not kill. Jesus was objecting to what they had heard from their rabbis about the interpretation of the words, thou shalt not kill. Because Jesus expanded that sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, to include anger without a cause, to include name-calling. Jesus didn't care what they had heard. I don't care what you have heard. And you shouldn't care what you have heard. I don't care what I have heard. What does the Bible say is what should determine everything. And Jesus was the Word of God. Isn't that an interesting name of his. He was the word of God. And so we want to submit to that. And these Jews wouldn't. They're mocking him in this 34th verse. They're not interested in truth. That's why he didn't give them any. All Jesus did was respond by saying, you ought to be believing on the light while you have the light because the light is going away. And the light went away in just a few verses and they never heard him publicly again. We have heard out of the law. Well, they hadn't heard very well out of the law. They had heard that Christ abideth forever. Are there Old Testament verses, and I had them all listed in the outline, and we don't have time for them, but are there verses in the Old Testament that say that Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, the anointed one for Israel, would reign forever? Indeed. But are there also passages in the Old Testament that say he was going to die? Does Psalm 22 describe that death graphically? Does Isaiah 53 refer to that death? Yes, and other places as well. And so they question him, and how sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Your idea of a Son of Man is not our idea of a Son of Man. The only idea of a Son of Man that we want is God's idea of the Son of Man. Don't you ever picture Jesus any way other than how the Bible depicts him. 
Jesus did not come to be a deliverer of the nation of Israel from the yoke of the Roman Empire. Guess what Jesus did and which provoked them greatly? He submitted to the Roman Empire. He submitted to the Roman Empire and paid their taxes and said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And they didn't want a leader like that. They wanted a leader that would restore their national independence, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. That Lord Jesus that the Catholics have given us, of that long-haired hermaphrodite, John Lennon look-alike, Charlie Manson look-alike, that hangs on people's walls, that isn't the Jesus of the Bible. That's Satan mocking the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus didn't have long hair. Long hair on a man is a shame to a man. Jesus didn't have long hair. Where in the world did they get that idea? But from the devil to mock the Lord Jesus Christ with that long-haired, effeminate, sissified form of Jesus that so many Christians have in their homes, on their key rings, and in their Bibles, and in their Bible storybooks. Make the Jesus that we follow the Jesus of the Bible. The one described there. And we don't question it. Where do they get the picture of that long-haired hermaphrodite standing at a door in a garden and knocking? Where do they get that? They get that from Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, if there was a verse involved in that picture at all. But to get to Revelation chapter 3.20, you have to read chapters 1 and 2. And chapter 1 describes him with hair as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, and he's girt about with a golden girdle, and his feet are like burning brass, and his voice is like the sound of many waters. That little effeminate sissy standing at the door, that's not my Jesus. If that's your Jesus, I want to see how well he's going to deliver you from the lake of fire. That Jesus couldn't deliver himself from a wet paper bag. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. I just described the Jesus of the Bible to you, but we, nobody's drawn a picture of him like that, have they? Nope. Do you know why? Because anyone that believes the Bible knows that they're not supposed to draw pictures of Jesus. Amen. So even though they can see a picture of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 and the same picture in Revelation chapter 19, except then he is sitting on a horse and there is a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and he is dripping in the blood of his enemies. Right. But they don't draw those pictures, do they? Because they're not followers of Satan like the Church of Rome and her daughters. Why in the world would a Baptist ever have a stinking picture of that little garlic-eating man that John Lennon made fun of and ridiculed that stands in that garden? I know you don't like what I'm saying, do you? Would you be able to throw darts at a picture of that Jesus? Would you be able to? That isn't the Jesus of the Bible. That is the Roman Catholic caricature of Jesus promoted by the devil. So right here, they're mocking my Jesus. And they're saying, who is this son of man? We want our son of man. We want our version of Jesus. That's why I just went off on that rampage. If you read the verse with any understanding, you should be incensed at these people of God, the church of God, the nation of Israel, Responding to the Lord Jesus Christ this way. And then Jesus just rebuked them this way by telling them, yet a little while is the light with you. You've only got a few more minutes. And you should believe in the light. Remember, this chapter started out six days before the Passover. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Jesus is about to die on the cross. And so he says, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you've got the light because it's going away. 
Do you know what the Bible would say to us? 2 Peter chapter 1, holding, always keeping your place at John 12 because we will be returning there. But here's a wonderful verse about the Bible that you hold in your hands and what we ought to do with it, lest we be foolish like those Jews were and rebellious like those Jews were. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, speaking about the Bible because it's mentioned in verse 20 as the scripture. So verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. The Bible is a more sure revelation from God than God's voice from heaven. If you were to read this passage of Scripture starting at verse 16, you would have the Mount of Transfiguration described to you in verses 16 through 18. Verse 19 says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy or of revelation from God. And that's in the Scripture. The Scriptures are more sure then being on the Mount of Transfiguration, have Jesus glorified in front of you with Moses and Elijah and James and John there as witnesses. Peter said, the Bible is more sure. Don't listen to somebody that tells you they've had a vision. Don't listen to somebody that tells you anything like that. The Bible is more sure. It's in writing. And we don't have to wonder if you had indigestion during the night for your dreams that you want to tell us about. This is it. When a man says, I have a dream. Well, we don't care about your dreams. Do you know that the Bible deals directly with dreams? Does anybody know where to go in the Bible to where God deals directly with dreams? When a man says, I have a dream, or I had a dream. Jeremiah 23. Let the false prophets give you their dreams, and my men will give you my word. Is not my word like a fire and a hammer that will crush and beat their dreams to pieces? It's Jeremiah 23. Amen. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. Brothers, sisters, me. Listen to the warning. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. The Lord Jesus Christ is not here personally, but his written gospel is here for us, and we better take heed to it as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. John 12, 35, and 36 were Jesus warning the Jews, the light is only with you for a few more minutes. You had better follow that light and believe that light or you're going to be left in darkness. We have the light. Do you neglect this book? Right now you should be paying rapt attention to whatever comes out of my mouth that is based on this book. This is the word of God, the scriptures of the living God. And we better take heed unto it as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, this is what we have. And we want to dedicate ourselves to it. That's a section. Is there more that could be said about this section? There is so much more that could be said about that section. But we're going to go to the next section. Verses 37 through 41. But, sometimes we like the butts of the Bible. Sometimes the butts of the Bible are God delivering us from a situation we've got ourselves in. Like Romans chapter 6 and verse 17 that I used earlier today. But, though Jesus had done all that he had done, and though he said the light is only with you for a little while longer, believe in that light. But, though he had done so many miracles before them, Yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? 
And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes, and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory, and spake of him. Isaiah is Isaiah. Isaiah is how Isaiah comes from Hebrew to Greek to English. That's why it's Isaiah. That's why it's Isaiah in the Old Testament where it's Hebrew to English. But when Hebrew goes to Greek to English, it pops up as Isaiah. So it's Isaiah. And we have two prophecies of Isaiah. We have Isaiah 53 first, and we have Isaiah 6 second, which you read last evening in preparation. Isaiah 6 is that wonderful short chapter of 13 verses in which the first eight verses are a vision of the glory of God. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and the smoke filled the house. And the cherubim and seraphim were around that throne, crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Tremendous vision. At the end of that vision, God said, Who will go for us? The, plural of the, tri- the plurality of the Trinity. Who will go for us? Whom shall we send? And when you have a vision like that of God, here am I. Send me. And God said, well, it's not going to be a ministry that you're going to enjoy because they're not going to believe because I'm going to harden their hearts. I'm going to stop up their eyes and their ears. You're going to preach to a people that don't want to hear it. Lord, how long till I've scattered this whole nation all around the earth? And that's the prophecy that we're going to deal with right now. What a wonderful chapter, though, Isaiah 6. I'm referring to it because of verse 41. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. That is, I say things that I regret. And I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Capital L. Do you, let's, I'll prove it. Isaiah 6. Mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Why is this important? I'll show you just a second. Hurry. Hurry. I'll blame you if I can't finish on time. Because last week I blamed me. Isaiah 6, verse 5, For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Oh, it's a wonderful passage. If you didn't read it last night, you deprived yourself and you deprived God. You deprived God the glory that he deserves and yourself the benefit to your heart and mind of reading one of the best little chapters in the Bible. But he saw the King, the Lord of hosts. Capital L-O-R-D. When David wrote in Psalm 110, The Lord said unto my Lord, The first Lord is all capital letters. For those of you that are not familiar enough with your King James Bibles, when it is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, in a King James Bible, that is from the Jewish scribes, meaning the underlying word is Jehovah. I am that I am. They didn't want to pronounce it all the time. And so since it's in the Bible, 
over a thousand times in the Old Testament, they stuck the acronym for I am that I am the, in the Bible. And it is translated for us, Lord, capitals. But David said, the Lord, all caps, Jehovah, said unto my Lord. So David is saying, God Jehovah said unto my ruler, meaning Jesus, because Jesus appealed to that. But I've jumped ahead, and I want you to look at John 12, 41. What does it say in John 12, 41? These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Right. Who's, an, who's the he in this context? The Lord Jesus. Amen. So how is Jesus also capital L-O-R-D? Jesus is Jehovah. Yes, brother. Thank you for participating. Jesus is Jehovah. Don't forget it. Now, that's, that's not the only one we have in the Bible. We have dozens of them. Thank you, Lord. Back to verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Jesus indeed, indeed did many miracles before the Jews. In fact, John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, We know that thou art come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest. Already, that early in his ministry, John chapter 3, it was recognized. The most recent miracle had been the resurrection of Lazarus. And the most recent divine confirmation was in verse 28, when God spoke from heaven. Some of the people thought it thundered, some said an angel spake to him, but they all knew that it was a divine approval on the ministry of Jesus Christ. But though, but, but, meaning there's a contrast, Though he did so many miracles, they didn't believe. That's what that but is there for. It's a disjunctive. It's setting two clauses in opposition to each other. It is setting the fact of what he did. They didn't believe on him. Yet is another disjunctive in the way that it's used here. Lord, have mercy. What wicked men. How could they be so blind? But it's the say that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. John's giving us some explanatory material. Verse 37 is written by John. Verse 38 is written by John. If you have a red letter edition Bible, then it's in the black. You have verses 35 and 36 in the red. You have verse 34 in the black. And verses 37 and 38, 39, 40, 41 are in the black. Verse 42 is in the black. And 43. Then Jesus will speak again through the end of the chapter. So John's giving us helpful information right now about why God's people, God's church, could have such a divine manifestation in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and yet they wouldn't believe on him. Though he told them, you're only going to have me for a little while longer, though he had described transcendent events, though Greeks had come to see him, none of those things moved the Jews. They were obstinate, as the Bible says about them over and over, stiff-necked and hard-hearted. And now we're going to find out part of the reason why. Depravity is sufficient. But God is going to show that he blinded those people. Further, there should have been a whole lot more mental ascent without real life-changing faith. But there wasn't. Very much. 
Verse 38, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? What is the arm of the Lord in this passage? The Lord Jesus Christ, the right arm of Almighty God. He sits at his right hand. He is his sword. He is his son. That son was revealed to Israel. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. When we look at verse 38 here in John 12, and when I read it to you, and I use the words that John wrote from Isaiah the prophet, who hath believed our report, what chapter of the Bible is that? Now, if you're looking at your cross-references, you're cheating just a little bit. That's what they're there for. They are a cheat sheet to be used, but not right now. Where is that chapter from? What is that chapter? Isaiah 53. Now, you know about Isaiah 53, don't you? But we tend to want to leap into the middle and latter parts of Isaiah 53 because they have the verses that we've memorized. All we like sheep have gone astray. Instead, verse 1 starts us off that this Messiah that is going to lay down his life for us is not going to be believed on in the world. That is the world of the Jews. I needed to correct that, didn't I? Because part of the great mystery of godliness is he was believed on in the world by us Gentiles. So it's Isaiah 53. Many read Isaiah 53. They even read its opening verses as mere poetic words with little import. But those words are important because they're the ones quoted here and they're the ones that explain something about why God's own people rejected their own Messiah. The Holy Ghost shows us that Isaiah 53 and Isaiah writing it foretold the Jewish rejection of their own Christ. The number of Jews or the percentage of that nation that believed on Jesus was quite negligible as we have referred to in, from other places recently. Let me say it again from John 1, this gospel. John 1, verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own, that is the Jews, received him not. So, Lord, who hath believed our report? In prophecy, Isaiah writes, we're going to preach and prophesy and point out the Lord Jesus Christ that I'm about to describe in Isaiah 53, and no one's going to believe it. Who hath believed? It's a rhetorical question, meaning that very few had. Who's going to believe? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Do you mean you're going to send your son, and it's not going to be revealed that this is the Messiah? John is putting this in here by the power of the Holy Ghost. John did not understand this in John 12. Because John didn't have the Holy Spirit yet that he's going to get from chapters 14, 15, 16, and chapters 20 and 21, and Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. The Apostle John's going to get a whole lot more of the Holy Spirit to understand these things. At this point, he didn't when John 12 occurred. But later, writing this gospel account for us with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's able to pull Old Testament prophecies, stack them together, and explain them to us. This is why the Jews didn't believe. Because it's astounding that they wouldn't believe. 
But it's astounding that a Gentile won't believe today but with the gospel that's gone forth. And it's astounding that there are people sitting in this assembly that don't want to believe, that reject and rebel and hold off claims by this Son of God for their lives. It's astounding. Who do you think you are? You don't have the wisdom God gave a gnat to compare to the Son of God, the Lord of glory. He has spoken regarding all parts of your life. And you do not have the right, nor the intelligence, nor the reason to say, well, this part of my life I'm going to protect for myself. It is not your life. Know ye not that ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit because they're God's. Your life isn't yours. You waste it every single day, you unprofitable servants. You waste so much time chasing around your little soap bubbles that you've created. We cannot read a passage like this and blast the Jews. We'll be as anti-Semite as the Bible is. Do you know what Jesus is going to say about this synagogue that they were afraid to get cast out of? He's going to say it twice. He's going to say it in Revelation 2.9, and he's going to say it in Revelation 3.9 for anyone that's wondering about my anti-Semitical words. That it's the synagogue of Satan. It's the synagogue of Satan. Twice. Jesus has already said in John 8.44 to these Jews, ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and you're going to murder me. He was a liar from the beginning, and you would rather believe lies than believe the truth that I'm giving you. This is the Lord of glory. And John, by the Holy Spirit, later, as he writes this account of the life of our Lord, explains these things to us, but we are not going to stand here and make fun of the Jews when we have a greater burden upon us, for there has been more light given to us than to those Jews. We don't need Jesus here in person. We have it in writing. We have a New Testament complete account of God by the Apostle Paul for Gentile churches, and he was able to heal with handkerchiefs. He had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ repeatedly. He had been taught at the seminary of Jesus in the deserts of Arabia for three years. And we have our gospel from him. And God has given us so much of the Holy Spirit that we believe it without seeing Jesus alive. We see him on the pages of Scripture. So we're, listen, Romans 11, and I'm not going to turn you there for the reason that I've already given. Romans chapter 11 says that we cannot be high-minded as Gentiles because God cut off Jews to graft us in to the kingdom of God. We can't be high-minded about it or he will cut us off. If he cut off the natural branches, do you know how much easier it is to cut us off that he stuck in later, us transplanted branches? So the warning is, Let's not condemn the Jews. Let's condemn ourselves. That's why I'm so condemning this morning. Embrace it. Are we obeying every part of the word of God like we should? Do we have the heart of David for the Lord Jesus Christ? David had a heart for the Lord Jesus Christ with hardly knowing him. But you read some of the Psalms that are Messianic Psalms about Jesus Christ. David loved his son before he ever saw him. Do we love his son and we've seen him clearly? David didn't even know his mother's name. We know his mother's name. Do you know his mother's cousin's name? Do you know his cousin's name? Do you? Do you know all these things? 
We know a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm speaking about trivial facts that don't make a whole lot of difference. But you know he's the Lord of glory and that we ought to be obeying him in every part of our lives. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled is what 1238 tells us. And what was fulfilled by Isaiah the prophet? Verse 37, though he had done so many miracles, they didn't believe. And so the, the prophet wrote and said, Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm of the Lord is going to be visible in Israel. Jesus is going to be doing things as the representative of God that are stupendous. But who's believed it? And so, here's the explanation. I'm hoping that you read Isaiah 6 last evening, because after that vision of God in the first eight verses, the next five verses are Isaiah being told that God's going to blind that nation and harden them. And there's only going to be a very small tenth that are going to be left as his elect in that nation. And that's Isaiah 6. That's coming. Verse 39, right here. Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again. The word again is, we have two quotations from Isaiah the prophet. Verse 38 is a quotation from Isaiah 53. Verses 40 and verse 40 by itself is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. What did Isaiah say in chapter 6 according to John as he writes us this account as to why the Jews did not believe? He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. Amazing statement. Thank you, blessed God, for putting it in there to explain this to us. He hath blinded their eyes. The Jews had rejected many prophets for many generations and deserved this judgment. Even elect Jews at this time were blinded. Not all of them, but some of them. That's what Romans 11 is in the Bible for. Even elect Jews were blinded to push the apostles and the gospel to Gentiles. If there would have been a big enough reception by the Jews of the preaching of the apostles, they would have stayed with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But because the majority of the nation rejected the gospel and some of the elect rejected the gospel, this is Romans 11, they were pushed to the Gentiles. And Paul explains it in Acts chapter 13. Paul said, Paul, they're blaspheming and opposing Paul. When the whole city of Antioch of Pisidia comes out to hear Paul preach the second Sunday, the second Sabbath, the whole city comes out, and Paul says, he looks at those Jews, you have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. You're fulfilling scripture right now. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard that, they glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. There's God's election. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That's what we believe in this church. That to believe the gospel, you have to be ordained to eternal life. And when did God ordain us to eternal life? Before the foundation of the world. It's a wonderful passage of scripture. But it says that when the Gentiles heard this, they glorified the word of the Lord. I believe that some of you, yea, maybe even many of you, glorified the word of the Lord over the last couple of weeks because of the wonderful things we have read from both Testaments about Jesus Christ converting Gentiles. We have rejoiced in some of those scriptures. 
But are you rejoicing this morning? You better be glad and glorify the word of the Lord. Your ancestors are the most ignorant people that have ever walked this planet. And mine right along with yours. We were holding hands, worshiping every God that we could conceive of. And we'd make one up if we couldn't conceive of it. It was terrible. We were offering our children in sacrifice. We were worshiping parts of the male anatomy. They still do in Washington. It's called the Washington Monument. Churches still do when they put a steeple on their buildings. They're still worshiping a phallic symbol if you need help with what I mean by a part of the male anatomy. And you can't figure that out. Since our navels look alike, I wasn't appealing to that, was I? Lord, have mercy. We should be glad and glorify the word of the Lord is what I'm trying to say to you in my roundabout way. Are you glad and glorifying the word of the Lord that it's come to you and the Lord has changed us to believe that message of the gospel, that this son of God is glorious? Amen. We call them transcendent events. Right. Because we're not just going to rush over verses 31 through 33. We know that he judged the world at his first coming. And that he judged the prince of this world at his first coming. And that he was going to draw all men, all kinds of men from all nations to himself with his cross. Amen. And we love that message. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for saving our souls. We were slaves of sin like no other. But God be thanked. Amen. It's all about him. Yes. But God be thanked. He hath blinded their eyes, through de though depravity, though depravity blinds men enough already, God further closed the gospel to them and revealed this aspect of it to us to make a point that he was redirecting things to a nation that would give him fruits out of his vineyard. There's no contradiction. These people weren't about to believe, but he closed their eyes. They didn't even believe with mental assent except some of them, because we're going to have a nevertheless that we've got to deal with momentarily. And it is a tricky nevertheless in the Bible. Maybe I can wait until after break so that I can get a little more strength and courage up to preach that verse to you. Maybe not. Let's see. He hath blinded their eyes. Jesus spoke to the Jews in parables. Right. Why did Jesus preach in parables? Parables, what are they? They are obscure, dark, metaphorical representations of something. They are riddles. They are proverbs. A parable is an extended proverb. It's a riddle. The, the apostles came to Jesus and said, Why are you preaching in parables? They can't understand you. We can't even understand you. That's what they said. And Jesus said, Because it's not given to them to understand. And so I preached them in parables, and I'll explain it to you in private. And so he explained to them in private. And that's one of the simplest parables there is. We think so. But what if you had never heard the explanation for it? And it's the parable of the sower. A man went out in the field and sowed seeds. Some landed in the sidewalk. Some landed in thorny ground. Some landed in stony ground. And some landed in good ground. But, he, but, you know, they had to cast seed. They didn't have seed dispensers like we do today, being pulled by John Deere tractors with PTOs coming out of their backside. Jesus explained, that's why I spoke in parables. Right. I don't want them to understand. Amen. I want to close their eyes up. I want to fulfill Isaiah chapter 6. Amen. Isaiah 6 is six times the New Testament. Say, so, really? That prophecy of blinding Israel is six times. 
Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, Acts 28, Romans 11. That's five. What one did I forget? Right. Just checking. Just checking, you guys. John 12, right here. Amen. David Castleberry, I wasn't just checking, you guys. Oh, brother. Lunch wherever you want it this afternoon. I'm still grieving. John 12 and verse 38. Look at these words. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Let's go back to the eyes and their heart. Let's look at the eyes and the heart. They're already depraved. If they're not regenerated, they're, they're dead in trespasses and sins. What else did he do to them? Well, he spoke in parables. So they couldn't understand even intellectually what he was talking about. He healed often on the Sabbath, Sabbath day. Could the Lord Jesus have arranged his travels just a little differently? Of course. How hard would it have been? There's six chances out of seven. Could he have arranged his travels to have met these impotent folk on any day of the week but the Sabbath? He could have. Why didn't he? Because it provoked them and drove them crazy. It made them think murderous thoughts. You say, well, that's not very nice. Now listen, you're not being very nice. He's just done 10,000 miracles. He's fed 5,000 besides women and children out of a little boy's lunch. He's calmed the sea. He's raised the dead, and you don't think he's very nice. (laughs) He's given dated and timed prophecies in the Old Testament that he is the Messiah of God, but you don't think he's very nice? I love him. I love him just the way he did things. I love him for healing on the Sabbath repeatedly and having the ruler of the synagogue stand up and say, there's six other days that you could have done this. This person's been on their bed for 20 years. Why would I want to make them wait another day? Oh, I love him. And they wanted to murder him. And so I'm just trying to explain to you, did he do anything else other than total depravity? Oh, yes. So that even intellectually they didn't want to admit him. They were so full of rage. Jesus did not come with any appearance of royalty, and he submitted fully to Rome. How could he be the Messiah? Do you understand when he made that choice to give Caesar his rightful place over the Jewish nation and that Jewish citizens should pay taxes to a foreign, usurping, oppressive, tyrannical power that had no rights in the Middle East because of the constitution of the Jews, which was the Old Testament scriptures. Do you realize what that said to all the Jews? They hated him. They wanted someone that was going to stand up and be a zealot for their nation and destroy Rome. Throw it off. They wanted another Judas Maccabees. But Jesus is better than Judas Maccabees. Judas Maccabees, the hammer of God, delivered them from the Greek empire. But Jesus delivered us from sin and Satan's empire, which is better. Which do you really want, Gentile brethren? Thank you, Lord. And he hardened their hearts. God's always been active in heart manipulation and mind manipulation. Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful that God's in the business of brainwashing? If God didn't brainwash you to believe on his son, you never would. God told Moses in Exodus 4, and I'm telling you that is early in the ministry of Moses. 
Exodus chapter 4, I'm sending you back to Egypt, but I'm going to tell you something in advance. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let my people go and you will get to display some pretty neat things in the land of Egypt. He did that to Pharaoh. What in the world would grip a man's mind so that after all those plagues, he would be sitting in his chariot at the edge of the Red Sea with the water piled up on both sides and make a choice, I'm going in. The horses wouldn't have wanted to go very eagerly. They know better. How could he do that? Because God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and I will get me honor over Pharaoh and over his entire army. Because I am waiting for the praise band led by Miriam to unload on me in Exodus 15 when they're going to dance with tambourines and sing my praises about how I'm able to overthrow the horse and his rider. Why did God let him get down into the middle of the Red Sea and took the wheels off his chariots? Do you know what it should say? And Pharaoh turned around. What does it say? He drove his chariot furiously. It's, it's hard to make a vehicle go, go on its axle without wheels. That's how the American Indians move things. They never invented the wheel. They couldn't believe a rolling wagon. Never imagined such a contraption. It's far better to tie two sticks to a dog and call it a travoy and move things. Don't think that, that God has made differences in nations even in practical, practical ways. The Egyptians were building pyramids and hauling things and, and hauling their pharaoh in chariots. But he drove his chariot furiously. God had hardened his heart. He did not turn his chariot around. He tried to keep going because the rage it fills the natural man. If God withholds his grace, we would all do that. And yet, when we come over to Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul goes out to a riverside where prayer was wont to be made in the city of Philippi of Macedonia of Greece, far across the Mediterranean Sea and in Europe. Paul preached in Europe. Where do you think Greece is? Is Greece part of the European Common Union or is it part of the Asian Common Union? I didn't know there was an Asian Common Union, but European. Greece is in Asia. I mean, Greece is in Europe, excuse me. Paul preached in Europe, and he's in the city of Philippi, named after the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedonia. And he goes out to a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. Prayer meetings were held out there. And he went out there and he preached Jesus Christ and the Lord opened the heart of a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, a woman whose name was Lydia. He opened her heart so that she attended unto the things that were spoken by the Apostle Paul and was converted, was baptized, and said, if you count me faithful before the Lord, then you and your preacher buddies come and stay at my house. I'm in business for one reason, to serve the kingdom of heaven. Amen. It's beautiful. It's Acts 16. Are you thankful that he's in the heart manipulation business? Yes. If he hadn't changed your heart, you'd have never believed the gospel. Liddy would have never believed the gospel. You say, but how, could, how can Pharaoh, that is just, 
That is hard doctrine, brother. When you say that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart and then he judged Pharaoh for his hard heart, that doesn't sound fair. God knew you wouldn't think it was fair. He knew I would think it was fair. He knew you wouldn't think it was fair. So he said this. After telling us about Pharaoh in Romans 9, he said, Thou wilt say then, you're going to object to what I just told you about Pharaoh. Thou wilt say then, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? If God exercised his will to harden Pharaoh, how can he find Pharaoh at fault? Paul said, thou wilt say then unto me. I thank the blessed God of heaven for this verse that I'm quoting to you, changing me my life by declaring to me the sovereignty of God in all things, including my salvation. When I was 19 years old, thou wilt say then unto me, he raised your question for you and put it in the Bible. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, how could he judge him for it? What is the answer? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not God power over the clay? Hath not the potter power of the clay, of, of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Lydia was unto honor, Pharaoh was unto dishonor, but God gets honor from both. Dishonorable for Pharaoh, honorable for Lydia, honorable to God in both. That is the God of the Bible. Why don't people preach this message? Why at missionary conferences is John 12, 38 not used? They don't know the God of the Bible. And so like the Pharisees of old, they're running around the world encompassing land and sea, Matthew chapter 23 tells us, in all their efforts to make one more proselyte. Now, we do our efforts, but we're not trying to put any names in the book of life. All we're trying to do is find God's children out there, the elect, like the Apostle Paul did and show them the way of God more perfectly. Because we know that Jesus Christ is the great soul winner and he'll not lose a single one. He's going to save every single one of them by his own power and his representation of them. John 12, verse 38, and hardened their heart. You know how long we could go on hardening hearts. Are the hearts in America being hardened? I want to explain to you a little bit more about depravity. Does Jesus have to blind a person to keep them from believing the gospel? No. Nobody will ever believe the gospel. But does God do some things to further blind them to mess up their minds so that they can't even give mental assent? Is that happening in America right now? I'm looking for any same-sex couples in here. I have failing vision, and it's a large crowd. Are there any same-sex couples in here? How could there ever be a same-sex couple? Because God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Depravity goes to a certain point, but then God sometimes, to shame men further, takes away even their mental understanding of things natural that animals have figured out. Romans chapter 1 is being fulfilled before our eyes. When I was in school, 
There weren't any transgenders in my high school. Our locker room was free from transgenders. I can promise you. There were no same-sex couples holding hands walking our hallways. In our lifetimes, where did it come from? They took prayer and creation out of the schools and put in their blasphemous ideas on every other level, from every other source, than the Word of God. And God has given our nation over to a reprobate mind, and it is rushing down a slippery slope right into the jaws of hell while I speak to you. The, the change and transformation in this nation in the last 50 years is unbelievable. Yeah. But every time you read about it, go back to Romans 1 right. and read from verse 18 to 32 and understand that it's being fulfilled before your eyes. We have insider knowledge, insider information. I am so tired of reading people who think they have insider information. Rush does not have insider information. He doesn't even have information. We have insider information. We know what is happening in the world on the inside level of allowing Satan and turning men's minds over to reprobate, confused, confounding, disgraceful, abominable thinking. Because God thinks it's perfect for them to abuse their bodies between themselves. And that's what it says in Romans chapter 1. Because it is just and perfect retribution for them rejecting a creator. And to think that all this, all the beauty of our universe and the organization of it, and the design of it, and the reproductive ability of it, happened in a big bang of energy. Dense energy expanded and created all this. That is worse than a pagan mind falling down to a totem pole and saying, thank you, totem, for making me. Because at least they're recognizing something that might have a chance of doing it. Right. You say, a totem pole doesn't have it. It's more than it coming out of nothing. Right. Organization, beauty, design, and reproduction has never come out of chaos by an explosion. And so because our world has done that, God's giving them over to a reprobate mind. And I'm trying to explain to you these words because you, not, you understand that they wouldn't believe just by sheer total depravity. But there's more at, at work here. Right. God keeping them even from the mental ascent. That has got to be the Messiah. But I ain't going to follow him because he doesn't want me to get mad and call people names anymore. Do you follow me? Yeah. They, would, they would just re flat out reject him. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. Does that verse tell me that God doesn't want everyone to be converted? Yes. Does that verse say that? Mm -hmm. Are you going to remember this verse when somebody tries to throw 1 Timothy 2.4 at you? Who will have all men to be saved? When 1 Timothy 2.4 says who will have all men to be saved... What does it mean when here it says he doesn't have all men to be saved? How are we going to reconcile it? I reconciled it for you last Lord's Day. Yep. For every thinking man in here, all kinds of men. Amen. Who will have all kinds of men because the context of 1 Timothy 2.4 is kings and for all their authority, which was hard for Christians to believe that God would save some of the pagan Roman Empire. Right. Who will have all kinds of men to be saved. But all men without exception, not a chance, because that would contradict John 12, 38. 
All men without distinction? Yes, which means all kinds of men. 2 Peter 3, 9, somebody will throw at you. You know, that school that you go to, they're going to throw this verse at you. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Does this passage look like God and Jesus want all men to come to repentance? No. no. Then why does it say in 2 Peter 3, 9, who will have all men uh, to come to, to not, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? Why does it say that? Oh, you brothers are good. Thank you. Thank you. We can go to break and have a happy pastor. <laughs> because it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Usward. Not willing that any should perish. Not willing that any of usward should perish, but that all of usward should come to repentance. If we'll read the Bible... The Bible will not have contradictions in it Amen. if we'll read it carefully. But if we have a denominational agenda to push, then we will take 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 4 and say, we've got them. No, you don't. You've got the Lord Jesus Christ on a cross and you would crucify him as fast as the Jews did because he said that he came to fulfill Isaiah 6 and that it was to blind men and harden their hearts. God did not want all the Jews converted. He did not want to heal them. He desolated them just like he promised he would in Hebrews chapter, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of them. So verse 40, I've been referring to verse 38, is the prophecy from Isaiah 53. I have meant to say verse number 40 a couple of times, which is Isaiah chapter 6. And verse 41 tells us, These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him, referring to the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 6, which is there in verse 40. And the prophecy in 38 is from Isaiah 53. And this explains by the Holy Spirit to John, through John, I should say, to us, why the Jews could see so many miracles and have prophecies telling them that their Redeemer was coming at this appointed time and that he would have a man in front of him that would announce his coming, named Elijah the prophet, in the spirit of Elijah the prophet. He looked just like Elijah the prophet. He dressed like Elijah the prophet, and they couldn't figure any of that out. Why couldn't they figure it out? They were depraved sinners, and they were under the judgment of God that wouldn't even allow their minds to work ordinarily to have given him mental assent. There's going to be some mental assent coming up shortly, but it's not faith of the real kind that changes men's lives. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. But may we remember that there was light before them for a few more minutes and they rejected it. We have light in our laps and you do not know if today is your last day, if this week is your last week, but we have it right now. Are you going to embrace it and have the heart of David and seek Jesus Christ and his father with our whole hearts like David exhorted us? Right. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.